So uh, my name is Michelle Munger and I actually am from Presbyteria of the Mid-Atlantic. I consider myself a concerned citizen of that Presbyteria because I'm not actually a teaching elder or ruling elder. But um, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart for many reasons. And um, the Presbyteria has graciously allowed me to have, to have this conversation at our regional meetings and I'm, I was very excited when I was allowed the ability to come and present during Leadership Institute this year. And we are, and just for your planning purposes, if you haven't chosen yet for tomorrow, we also have a networking lunch tomorrow where I want to hear about all the amazing things that y'all are doing or hope to do. So this topic is every church can welcome individuals and families with disabilities. And I'm hoping that we can come away from here with um, some great ideas. Um, so I know um, we had a few extras, so I've got a packet of information for you all. So who? So we, at the earlier session, we talked about families with disabilities specifically, trying to help us kind of understand what their challenges might be from a, from a personal perspective. I actually have two young men with autism, nonverbal autism. They're 18 and 20 years old now. And we experience those tough times of being asked to, to leave or being asked to not return because of difficult behaviors. And that was so heartbreaking for me. And it took a couple of years before the Lord really impressed on me that I still had a job to do. Because when, with the boys' challenges, I had expected to go into ministry myself. And I was expecting, you know, a typical staff position, you know, working on staff somewhere at church. And then with the boys and their challenges, it was just, it was like, I can't do any of that now. So it took about four years before God said, no, you still have a job to do. And, and that job is to help the church figure this out. So that's been, I've, in my own way, trying to figure out how to make that happen. So my goal is to help give you some tools and give you some extra things to think about as it relates to your ministry and your setting. There's no one size fits all on this. There are lots of resources out there about how to start a special needs ministry or a disability ministry and they're all pretty overwhelming, right? They, I hear it all the time. I, I read this book and there's just no way. We don't have those people resources. We don't have that money. We don't, there's no way. And so they shut it, they put it on the shelf and they say, this is just isn't for us, and go to the church down the road, right? The big church. Unfortunately, the big church down the road doesn't usually always have it figured out either. So, so I want to help us, with it, especially within the EPC. My husband and I discovered the EPC about five years ago, and um, the rest has been kind of history as far as that goes. And um, so we're gonna run through this together. All right, so this is one of my most favorite quotes. It's um, from Eric Carter, who currently is with the Vanderbilt University. We are incomplete without the presence and participation of people with disabilities. 
And this picture here I share is actually my two little guys um, 18 years ago now. So, and those, those two little guys weren't able to go to church because of the oldest challenges. And my husband and I actually took turns going to church and you know, they stayed home. So, but we are incomplete. And we are incomplete. It's not just something that um, is just a cliche thing, but I think there's scripture to back that idea and we're gonna get to that in a little bit. But I wanted to start with, has anyone heard of the puzzle piece perspective that was kind of made um, pretty popular by Barbara Newman at the CLC Network, has anyone? Okay, so the puzzle piece perspective is this idea that, and the puzzle piece that's here has two sides to it. It has a green side and a pink side, right, on one, so the green, so if you were to identify what your puzzle piece would be, the greens, we would list on the green side all of those strengths, all of those things that we do well, we excel at. It might, whether it be your spiritual gift, your, uh, your talents and things that, these are the things that we excel at. And I would prefer to be able to do these things all of the time, right? Whereas the pink side are maybe those things that we don't do so well. And Barbara shares that no matter, and we would all prefer to have a piece that is all green, right? We would all prefer to not have those things that we struggle with, no matter what that might be. And yet, no one is an all green person. All of us have strengths and weaknesses. So the puzzle piece idea is, is where, where you're weak, someone else will come alongside of you that is strong in that area. I think we try to encourage that amongst staff, right? If you're not administratively inclined, we're gonna connect you with someone that is because you're off over here dreaming and leading, right? So we're gonna make sure you have someone administrative to help make sure that you can continue dreaming and leading, but, we're all, but also need to get those things together. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right, so the puzzle piece, so, so this, the pieces would fit together, right? So from a Christian perspective, you know, we can, if we can all agree that everyone, no matter our perceived abilities, can contribute something, right? If we are all made in God's image, Right? If we are all here for a purpose, right? just because they can't do all of the things doesn't mean that they don't have value and they don't have a purpose. Right? It's just up to us to help them figure it out, what that purpose is. Right? So I've listed here just um, three scripture that really kind of help motivate what I do. Bless you. So in the first one, 1 Corinthians 12, this is that big, long chapter, you know, that talks about, you know, eyes and noses and, and feet and hands and, right, and you can't be an ear, you know, if you're supposed to be a nose or, you know, of course that's an oversimplification, but we all have a part to play. 
And we also, and there are also those areas of less uh, that are, are hidden, right? Those areas that are, um, and the word is escaping me, um, less honorable. That's what scripture says, right? Those areas are of less honor. Is that? No. I'm sorry. Anyway, you know what? I, you guys, you guys are familiar with First Corinthians twelve. I'm sorry. Is it locked? I'm sorry. The um, those areas that are that need to be hidden will be given greater honor. Actually, that's what it is. Sorry. Right. So that we need to. So is it possible that those with disabilities? Right, because we, they are hidden away, you know, at, well, are actually given more honor in God's eyes. Right? How do we how do we reconcile what some of Scripture says as far as it worth goes? And then Luke fourteen is one of my absolutely most favorite uh, chapters in the book of Luke. Luke is lots of fun all around, but Luke fourteen is just chock full of guidance for us as it relates to disability. You know, when, when he says, you know, when you give a banquet, don't invite your neighbor, invite the lame, the poor, the blind, because they can't repay you, right? And you will be blessed, right? And then a little bit further down, Luke's great banquet, you know, the master says, go out and compel them to come in those who are lame and blind, because, and they will sit at my table, not the others. And then Matthew 25. Yes, the least of these, right? That which you did to, to those, you also did unto me, right? So how does that you know, those are the kind of the scriptural foundations that whenever we do anything, at least from my perspective, when we do anything within the church, there has to be a scriptural motivation behind it, right? Are we doing it just because it sounds, sounds cool and fluffy and, you know, and cool to do? Or are we doing it because, no, this is really part of God's mandate for us. And not even just, just scriptural mandate, but you know, Jesus specifically, you know, in, in Luke 14 and Matthew 25. He's, those are red letters on those. So this population was important to him. All right, so within your packet, so we're going to go through that. We have, um, so actually, let me ex explain a little bit. So this packet was actually two, did double duty. The, the, right, the left side were things that I pulled specifically for the first class where we discussed families with disabilities specifically. We are going to touch on some of these things. And then we're going to look especially on this right side. And, but the inclusion fact sheet is actually on the left side. It is before the blue sheet. 
Inclusion fact sheet for faith leaders. And we're not going to go over this directly. This is a, just something for you to take back and to, to process and to consider uh, what these numbers, these are some really cool statistics that relate to us being able to go back and say, you know what, this is really important. And these are some of the tough numbers, as, especially as it relates to that first graphic of the different diagnoses and the percent increase in chance of them not attending compared to kids without any of those challenges. And when we see autism way over there at 84%, anxiety at 45%, learning disability 36 and isn't it interesting that all of those are mostly hidden, right? There's no physical cue on these. Families of kids with disabilities often feel excluded from places of worship. One in three families have changed places of worship because they felt their child was excluded. And then I love these, these options here at the bottom, how faith leaders can support inclusion of all kids. So those are some cool ideas to think about. And then, then the next one I want to draw your attention to is again on that left side. It's the blue sheet the five stages of changing attitudes. This is done by Dan Vanderplatz, who has created this pretty cool um, stages of for co-laborers. And these are these are the different stages that he's identified that a church or a nonprofit might go through as it relates to people with disabilities and the attitude that needs to change in order for us to do things well. So that's a, that's a pretty cool, you know, where are you or your session or your team at as it relates to this? Are we at the stage where we're, we're even willing to care? Are we, or are we finally at the point where we are truly co-laborers? One of the things that often comes up is that we have to be very careful about our language. Are we ministering to people? Are we ministering with people? Right. If we're ministering to or for, that kind of suggests that I have value and you have less value. Right. If we're if all if it's all one-sided, right. But what about with? You know what what do they bring to the table? You know so. Do you, so we don't really want a ministry to people. We really want to be with people because they have just as much, especially when we finally get to that point where we're at stage four in friendship and we acknowledge that the work that we do is just as much a blessing to us. So that would, might be an interesting conversation. You know, where are we? You know, do we truly, we think we might be at stage four, but are we really there? Do, do our actions and our attitudes really, truly reflect that? All right. Any questions about those things or comments? Yeah? No? All right. Anything? Uh, if I want to add um, on the five stages, um, 
the five stages worksheet that you have mentioned. Mm -hmm. So when I first uh, started uh, serving a special needs ministry, I met this man who was 22 years old. He had a Down syndrome. Um, you know, I have a physical disability, so I thought I knew everything about the disability, mm -hmm. but I was really wrong about that. So when I first met this person, well, his name is Mark. Um, he was very different. He communicated differently. Um, he was nonverbal. Um, so at first I was really frustrated, but later on I began to really understand that he had his different way of communicating with people. Of course, it was not through language or anything, but through his dancing, through his actions. Mm -hmm. That's what he, how he was trying to communicate with people. So over the years, I was able to build a friendship with him. I think that was one of the five stages. Mm -hmm. But then as I began to uh, lead the group, um, I was thinking about how we can actually uh, bring him, integrate him as a part of the ministry as well. And I noticed that he loves high-five with people. So I brought him to a children's ministry so that after the children's ministry, he was doing a high-five with those children, and he loved it, and people loved it. And then in that sense, people, the children uh, were more comfortable around him. And then later, as a way of uh, bringing him, or actually it's giving him more uh, sense that he's a part of the ministry, mm -hmm. we made him this... Uh, what do I call it? The lanyard. Oh, yeah. this type of thing, because all the volunteers had this, but he didn't have one. So mm -hmm. I made this, and then I put his name on it, Mark, but more than that, I put a Mr. Mark, Mr. High Five, because he <laughs> loves High Five. <laughs> and in that sense, children were able to respect him as a Mr. High Five, and then he also felt that he was part of the ministry. He, he couldn't understand what it was, but he felt it, he sensed it, and he, he actually um, loved his role as Mr. High Five. Mm -hmm. So I think that was one of ways that we can integrate um, in terms of understanding this five-stage yeah. uh, building relationship. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Hi, come on in. Hi, come on in. You're here for disability ministry? I'm here for my husband. Oh. And he said he was in 206. He might be on the other side. I don't recognize anybody. No. <laughs> he's I don't in recognize the... my husband, that's for sure. I'm sorry. It's okay. He's probably in the other 206. <laughs> yeah, there's another two. There's in the a building. in the other building. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so that, that's amazing. And that's really, you had to analyze his strength and then acknowledge that that strength has value to someone. Yeah, that's amazing. And he's guided to him, too. Yes. Lifted up, he's encouraged. Mm-hmm, yeah. He may not understand, just like you said, all of the ins and outs of what that means, but he knows that he, he has value. He's contributing to our church. Yeah. That's awesome. Any other really cool stories like that? Um, in our home program that's on Fridays right now, um, the Mother's Day out once a month. I cannot remember his name. That's what it's she's okay. trying to remember too. We're recording. But <laughs> you don't need a name. He uh, he loved to lead the prayer. So when we started to do lunch, that was his job. And and he 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 yelled it out and the whole thing, but he was that was so important. He's like, is it time yet? Is it time yet? You know, and he knew that, that was his job to do. And so, 
Huh? That's the only time he behaved. That's the only time he behaved. He was, that, he was wild, wide open. He you know, was so motivated. That he was motivated. That was his. That was his. His Wonderful. job. Uh -huh. You know. So that's. You know. And he just was yeah. thrilled every time he got to do that. Yeah. Yeah. How often do we do things that maybe other people can do simply because it's easier, it takes less time, less transition, less whatever it is, and yet we're depriving somebody of the ability to, to participate. I know we, actually, the youngest, while he's nonverbal as well, he is such a helper. And we actually started um, encouraging him to help take up offering. His dad was standing right there with him, but he was the one who was passing the plate. And sometimes it might have even been hand over hand because he was getting excited and distracted. But he was still participating. He knew he was helping. And again, he was very motivated to do exactly you know, what he was expected to do during that time. But it does take a little extra effort you know, for him to participate. And it might take a little bit more time, right? So, but what is the true value? You know, what is really important here? Is it important that we stay on time? You know, that everything move along? Or is it important for people to be welcomed and feel a part of the ministry? In the, the, the first session, I asked you a question, how do you communicate with, with your kids? Oh, yeah. And I, I just had a thought. You said they're nonverbal. Does that mean they're non-sound ability? I mean, do they, do they react with any kind of a sound type of, of reaction. Oh, sure, yeah. Usually, so the question is about how we communicate with my children who are nonverbal. And it's not, they're called nonverbal because I can't have a conversation with them. I can't really ask them, you know, anything and get a word response. Now, I can get body language, generally. Um, that's generally the, the first mode of communication. And if we were actually at school, they have a device, you know, that they actually will press, press the pictures. But for whatever reason, my two autistic children decided that that communication happens at school. That's part of work. And we don't do that at home. <laughs> so, so that's been a challenge to, to overcome because they compartmentalize a lot of things. So... But body language is pretty, pretty obvious. Our yes, sir. Like that. He's, he's eight now. He's still, he, he can say about 12 words. Mm -hmm. And uh, he reacts very well to music, um, but he, he does not do well in large groups. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when we have something at the church, it's a group. So we have to kind of be careful how what, what things he can come to at church. Sure. The smaller things are better. Yeah. Or even just one-on-one. -on -one. But mm -hmm. he really responds to the music. and He has a pad that he plays with, like you said. Mm -hmm. He has numbers. He, can, um, he, he knows the alphabet. He's, he's doing really well. So, yeah. His name is Dominic, but he's a real joy. Yeah, they usually are, especially when you get to know them. Oftentimes, I think our, our folks with disabilities, you know, we, we just don't know what to do with them. We're afraid of messing up. We're afraid of hurting them, afraid of insulting someone. So we do nothing, 
right? And unfortunately, that's the unfortunate extreme of how we respond. You know, we don't talk to someone that's in a wheelchair because we're afraid of saying something that might offend them. You know, I've, I've heard that story, or, or someone, they forget that, you know, this child, even though they're in a wheelchair, doesn't mean that their brain doesn't work, that their mouth doesn't work, right? So, you know, we're not, we have to talk to them, not around them or over them, right? So. When you talk about the nonverbal, there's times he'll just lock eyes with you. Mm-hmm. And you know he's... Trying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty emotional thing sometimes, especially when they are so frustrated that, you know, and they're trying to communicate, but you're just not getting it. And, you know, I experience that a lot with my kids too and um, it's definitely something we just got to continue to work on so yeah we have the family who has autistic grandchild who brings in my two oldest or oldest and middle have worked with him as their shadow but my middle child has said Mom, I don't just I just don't understand why people don't get it he communicates just fine mm -hmm. <laughs> like but you're one of the few people because mm -hmm. you are there, you pay attention, you know, because he, you know, and he won't just go. He told his grandparents, if you need me to, I'll just come to the house and hang out with us. He said he's never really had a friend like that. And they're like five years apart. But it's just, he goes, I know what he wants. And you just distract him. You want, and it's just paying attention. Unfortunately, my now, he's 16 now. He doesn't see that as a gift. Yeah. I think that his ability to do that, he thinks everybody should be able to. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. It's just being aware. Yeah, you need to encourage that or, or remind him or let him know that no, you have something special. Yeah. I can, re oh. I can remember um, I have a cousin who has multiple challenges. And when I was in high, uh, a senior in high school, um, they came to visit my family, my mom. Um, the sisters were connecting. And I suggested that I take my cousin, who I think six, six or seven years younger than I was, let me take her, you know, so that you guys can visit, so that sisters can visit. And we were going to go to Taco Bell, and, and my aunt said, well, she's not going to eat the chips. She just likes the cheese. So I, I took her, and we went to a park, and then we went to Taco Bell. And all I did was let her know that the chips were the spoon, she ate all of it just fine. I don't, I didn't see the problem here, right? So, and my aunt was completely flabbergasted because no one had ever gotten her to eat the chips at Taco Bell before. So I'm like, well, it's just kind of matter of fact, I don't know. So, so that was interesting that, you know, and she's, you know, and she spoke over me a few things during that time, but I think that was one of the first first exposures to any kind of disability interaction that I had had. Because I didn't, you know, because when at school, you know, you don't, we didn't go to school with them. They were all excluded, segregated into their own spaces, right? So they just weren't on my radar either. And I had a cousin, and then I didn't see them again, folks with disabilities really, until I was di diagnosed. You know, my ch two children were diagnosed. So, and then it became my whole world, really. So, so it's just very interesting how all that works.
So, so let's move on to, um, so some of the struggles that we have, especially as pastors in session, is how do we equip our people? So often the pushback that we get from our volunteers or those people who are doing that direct care efforts is they don't feel equipped. They don't feel like they've been taught enough to be able to handle this specific situation. So training is going to be a huge piece. And it's continuous training because you're going to have people that come in and out. right? So you just can't do one a year and be done right? every month. You know, a commitment to a new disability type content training. And I wanted to share this, um, this first sheet here on the right. We're finally on the right side. I created this when I was on staff at a church. It was designed as a two-hour crash course in behavior management. And of course, I'm not a behavior specialist of any sort. I'm just a mom who's learned a few things. Um, but so you can do this, and, and I think it's, it's pretty straightforward. I actually did this for a vacation Bible school, you know, because you just never know who you're going to get, right, for all those teachers. And one of the things that when I do this training, um, we, we list the, the topic at the top says special needs training, or Today, I would probably change that to disability needs training because I'm trying to pull away more from special needs because there's no such thing as special needs, really. Everyone has the same type needs. They're just, you know, a little different. So, um, but when we do this, when, when I would do this, we would cross out the word special and I would either encourage them to say many or all to write that on top because really the techniques that are listed here are appropriate for your your folks to use if it's not your own child right if you can't grab them by the ear and drag them out of the room this is probably something that would be a valuable resource <laughs> for you so um, and, and we won't go over all of this I would um, I've purposely put my name and phone number and email address on here so that if if, if you get across something and doesn't make sense, um, I would love to explain that better. But we are going to look at this front, um, this front page. Um, that these are some of the things that, um, that you can expect and that we need to be aware of. As you know, we, when you're attempting to communicate with someone, we need to get the person's attention, whether or not that means, and that doesn't necessarily mean eye contact. It could be just getting on their level, making sure they are aware that you're talking to them, like a pat on the shoulder, or whatever that might be for that specific person. Because oftentimes, especially for my children, you can holler their name all day long but that doesn't mean that they're going to understand that they that they their attention needs to be focused towards that person, right? It's just part of that disconnect and then giving them time to respond. Um, if you're we need to physically guide if necessary and model requests. You know, if you want somebody to put away a puzzle, you might need to put away a puzzle, maybe even hand over hand, helping them to put away a puzzle or whatever it might be. If you need them to, you know, what, 
really whatever it is, modeling a behavior is, is very helpful. Catching them doing good, offering praises and thank yous, you know, whenever they do the, the slightest of thing. Giving simple one-step commands. Um, this concept of chaining I'd like to explain. So chaining is a, is a technical term where we're breaking down tasks into their um, app, into all of the little micro tasks that goes, goes into it. And it's something that we take for granted, right? If we want to get a glass of milk, right? What's the first step in grabbing a glass of milk? Open the cupboard, okay? Any other ideas? Open the refrigerator to get the milk, okay? Understanding what a glass is, understanding that I even have to do something, right? Or understanding, you know, that processing, you know, if I tell my children to get your shoes on, well, the first thing they have to do is understand that they've got to move, right? Because they've got to move from where, where they are to, so there's lots of different, so understanding they've got to do something, then actually standing up and doing it, when I, when I learned the concept of chain, chaining, it really helped me communicate better with my own children because often I would say, get up and do this, right? Because at least that helped them get over the pro that process of needing to actually stand up, right? So, so often we take for granted when we say, please rise, you know, please stand, right? You know, for whatever, you know, or, you know, it, it's, it's time for communion. Well, what does that mean? What are all the steps that are required in order for us to, to be able to accomplish that? And some of us process at very different speeds, right? You know, if you've got an intincture system of, of the Lord's Supper, you know, where you've got to actually stand up and move and, and do something up there, right? There's a lot of barriers for some people you know, that might, that we're not even aware of those barriers, right? Redirecting is a technique that is a distraction technique. So if, if, if Joshua is over here messing with, the, with, messing with the light, oh, that's pretty fascinating, right? The light going off and on, right? We won't want him to do that, but we're not going to scold him. We're not going to yell at him, right? We just want him to do something else because if we give him attention, right, it might actually backfire and be something, oh, I got attention. I'm going to do that more, right? So on the other end of the room, we might say, well, would you come help me pour goldfish? Or would you help me put this puzzle together, right? Give them another preferred activity to pull them away from what it is that they're doing, right? And so it's a, it's a redirection. And that's a very, that's, that strategy is useful for anyone, again, so. Um, dealing with the inappropriate behaviors, calmly request they stop, redirect, and then removing obstacles. This one is a pretty big, loaded um, topic. Removing obstacles, what is the root cause of this behavior? Is it a toy that they've fixated on? Is there a peculiar noise? Did you know that the... Good timing. I know. <laughs> 
did you know that the fire engine just passed by, right? You may not have heard it, but Joshua did, right? So he's now fixated on what's going on out there, right? Because they hear all of those things, right? And we can tune them out, but they, you know, he might hear his brother on the other end of the hall not being happy. So he's, he's not happy either now. Right? So what are, what are the root causes of this behavior? Are they overexcited? Are they tired? Is there a heavy perfume? You know, perfumes and smells, while most of us love them, they're also, they also set off asthma. They can, you know, cause anxiety in a lot of people. Some people are allergic, right? So encouraging our, our team members to try to do without their perfumes while they're on duty, it's a pretty important idea. And then on the back side, there's some different ideas of what are, what are some things that we might expect that we, we might have to, to be um, concerned about. Um, the sensory sensibilities, um, loud noises, certain tones. If you've got fluorescent lighting, there might be someone who can't stay in that room because they can hear the hum. You may not be able to hear it, but they can. Or, or direct light. Sometimes it has to be like indirect light. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Bright, bright lights. If you've been in a space where it might have a, a light blue cover over those lights, then that's, that's a big sensory, that's an accommodation that they've created. Being aware of self-stimulatory behaviors. Uh, my oldest is a hand flapper. You know, he, he will go, when he's excited, he's rocking and he's flapping, right? But that's how he expresses his excitement. So I'm not gonna ask him to stop doing that just because Matt next, door, next to him, you know, doesn't like it, right? We're gonna help Matt understand that Josh was excited and that's just how God made him. So we're gonna let, leave him alone, right? This next, the one, uh, the last one in those, those arrow bullets, watch for different types of behaviors. And these are just three basic. Is the behavior attention seeking? Do they need to escape? Or are they trying to avoid what's happening? And those are usually born out of sensory issues, right? If they don't like that music that's happening, then they're trying to, they might be trying to escape. Right? If they're trying to hit their buddy, it's not because they don't like their buddy. It's because they don't like being where they are or that might be. Right? So we have to play detective and we have to encourage all of our, our team members to be detectives and really think about what are some of, those, I, some of those things that might be causing these things. Because we can fix those for sure. Right? We can provide, we can take them on a walk, you know, get them out of that environment that's causing them so much, you know, all of those challenges. And then this last piece, um, the things that we need to remember, and remember this is a conversation where we're trying to, we're training, you know, a, a team. You know, how does God see this person and this family? And how does scripture say we should respond? And help, just help them keep that scripture, you know, and God's plan and purpose for what we're doing in front of us, right? Because you can't, because it, it's not my idea, 
You know, we're just trying to do what God has asked us to do. So, so and, you, and like I said, this was um, kind of a two-hour crash course. So it's a good, good thing to do with your, your team. And as far as other training, I, if, if you have access to a behavior specialist, maybe within your school division, that would be willing to come and, and help provide some, um, some different training opportunities. You know, how do we recognize you know, certain things? Um, there, there are different people. There, there might be a nonprofit group. Depending on where you are, there might be a disability group that um, is in your area that can support, could support you with some different resources as well. So, but the training, in order for our team members to feel comfortable, we've got to give them training. And we almost have to make it mandatory. If you want to participate in the children's ministry or in this, you know, this new adult ministry, you've got to attend these trainings because you will be, you will feel better about what you're doing and everyone will be happier. One of the first really positive experiences I had was with a church that was an hour away from where we lived. It was 20 minutes away from my son's preschool and I, I just happened to mention how much I wished that we could go to church and she said well you know what my church which was 20 minutes away remember um, has decided that they're going to do something and we're have they're having a mandatory meeting for all of the children's workers and the staff and we're and everyone is required to be a part of this training and we're going to talk about behaviors and talk about how do we welcome and she invited me to come and speak from a parent's perspective of what it means to be wel truly welcomed where I know that you've equipped your staff and you've equipped your workers so that I know I have some semblance that my child will be safe in your environment or that I have some level of confidence because I know you've been doing training and I know that your people are, are ready. So, and that was, that was really cool. But they made it mandatory. And I know in today's culture, it's tough to tell your volunteer this is a mandatory thing because, hello, they are volunteers, <laughs> right? But if it's a value that you've decided, <coughs> if your church has decided this is important, Michelle, one of the things uh, this couple that uh, has kind of helped us, because um, they like yourself, personal experience, and um, they worked with the children's ministry staff and uh, the student ministry staff. Mm -hmm. So, um, if someone comes to worship service, they uh, they take a uh, middle school or high school student that's been trained in shadow. Yeah that you know one-on-one mm -hmm. so what it's doing is really uh, mobilizing the students because they feel valued right because they have a role plus they're coming alongside and they're getting to know relationally you know and there's some training that goes into right. understanding how they best uh, walk down that path but it mm -hmm. i've just seen it be a, a really beautiful mm -hmm. win mm -hmm. all, all, all involved yeah so, and we're just well and buddy systems just in general are very much that thing that 
not that it's the new Vogue thing to do, but it serves so many purposes. Just like you said, it gives them a sense of, I'm actually participating in ministry, but it also helps them to see, because often they're segregated as well within their school systems, right? They don't have much to do with those individuals with disabilities at their schools, right? So where do they get that exposure to people that are different, right? And how, and the by the church set it, establishing buddy systems, it really accomplishes so many things. So many um, parents, I've heard, I've heard stories of parents, they don't want to tell the church staff that their child has a disability because they don't want their child to be segregated. They don't want them to be labeled. They don't want them to be treated any different than anybody else. Not understanding, mom's not understanding, that you are setting yourself, your child up for failure when you do that. I, I totally get what, where you're coming from, but there are things that need to happen in order for everyone to be able to live well together, right? And knowledge is, I mean, it's not just an 80s thing, right? Knowledge is half the battle. No, it's, it's a huge part of the battle. And knowing how to best support people in their, with whatever it is, and we can't help if we don't know. It's one of the reasons um, I actually have a book that I'm writing that's coming out this fall. I'm al it's almost done. But it's, it's intended, and, and my husband keeps telling me, as soon as you write your book, new things will happen. So um, I'm holding him to that. But it's designed, it's intended for parents like me to be able to advocate well to their church, to their faith. To, to their faith community. Because I, I can look back and wish that I had done so many things differently. I wish I had had a conversation with the pastor instead of just stop going because no one seemed interested in having, you know, in us, in supporting us. So, and, and I think it'll be a, a, a great resource, so. What's the name of it? It's called Margins of Grace. Becoming Champions of Faith and Family in the Midst of Disability. So. And I actually take that, the concept of margins, that we have to check our margins, where, what are our expectations, and then do we need to push on those margins a little bit in order to help our children or help our family to exist better in this world? And then do we need to help, what do we need to do in order to adjust those margins, right? So, and whether that be, you know, however you need to advocate for yourself, but also to become a partner, right? It's not enough to call the senior pastor and say, my child is autistic, so what are you going to do for me, <laughs> right? And I've heard that happen so often that they just want to deposit them say good luck, I'm going to worship because I need worship, and <laughs> just want to shake them. <laughs> All right. Are there any questions or other comments about that? Yes, ma'am. I have a question about, we have the buddy system kind of going at our church, and it's something that's fairly new. Yeah. Um, and it's going pretty well, but what I see a lot is that the buddy will, um, will kind of take, you know, take the the child out and let the child do different things, you know, outside the classroom because maybe they're overstimulated. But it doesn't really seem like that fits with the inclusion part. You know, it seems like actually in 
being well-meaning, they're trying to help, you know, redirect and that kind of thing, but it's taking the kids out of the classroom, mm -hmm. segregating them and separating them. Do they come back, though? Sometimes, or but sometimes not. But it just feels like, I don't, I don't know if it's meeting the goal of integrating. Mm -hmm. It seems more like it is segregating, if, yeah. you know, with good intention, but yeah. I'm just not sure. So, so the question is um, concerning the buddy system and is it um, almost counterproductive for that buddy to take them out of that space? And um, I think there's, there's a hierarchy of when you take someone out. And one of the training things I think that you could have is at what point do we remove them? Right? At what point is it appropriate to take them out of the class to have a walk? And then when we take them out of the class, the, what, is the, what are the options? Right? Are they going out of the class and just swinging, or are we singing, you know, a hymn or you know a fun song, you know, Christian song with them? You know, what are the options? You know, are they still getting the support? When it comes to the, the school environment, calls it the least restrictive environment, right? So the least restrictive environment is completely integrated. They're in the classroom. They're doing all of the same things that everyone else is is doing. There's, you know, there's no true, if you were looking from the window, you can't really tell a difference. You can't tell who's got a disability and who doesn't. The next, that next section would be, and actually let's look at, um, on, in your packet, the um, yellow card on the back side. This is actually what, what I'm talking about. So, so inclusion, so I actually started with the inclusion diagram. And then the, the next the next kind of more restrictive would be that they're integrated, they're in the same space, but they might be doing their own thing, right? They might be coloring, you know, the page that talks about Jonah while everyone else is actually doing some kind of interactive activity about Jonah, right? So they're in the same space, but they're doing their own thing. Segregation, you've pulled them now out of the class. They are totally doing their own thing without with little regard of what's going on with their typically developing peers. And then exclusion, of course, is where they're not even on the property, right? So we don't want that. So if you were to create kind of a hierarchy of options, I think that would that would kind of help to solve that conundrum of, you know, are, they, are we really supporting them? Because they might absolutely need to take that walk. But they might need to take that walk with a timer, right? So we're going to walk for two minutes, but then we're going to come back. Because we don't want them to, to stay completely separated, right? Or we're going to go swing, and then we're going to, you know, maybe do this crazy activity over here with shaving cream and then we're going to come back in because that's a calming or preferred activity for them, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. But that's kind of a a kind of a great big plan that your your staff, you know, and those who are over that ministry would need to say these are the options, you know, and and yes, you still need those options for this child is done or they're not coming back, but we're not calling mom. Right, so what do we do in the, with that, 
right? So you do have to still have those options. But I know with my youngest, you know, there were times when he was just done and, you know, and he didn't need to be around anybody else. <laughs> so, so it was absolutely okay for him to go and swing, you know, on the swing set, right? And that's also a, a conversation that you can have with the parent. What would you, now these are our, these are our parameters, right? Which one, you know, is there one that you know is more preferred, right? And help that, allow them to help you create that specific plan for that, for that child. Yeah. So. Cool. Anything else? So the, you had spoken specifically to um, like volunteers in a classroom situation or something like that. Um, specifically one of our, uh, well we do two things. First we try to incorporate the kids in the first part of worship and we do have some kids that um, you know are unique across the spectrum. Like we have one individual that is a ESL, he's also I think he's seven and he functions more like a three or four year old. Um, so we've had to become creative as to mm -hmm. how he is able to be successful in worship. Um, the, at least with the special needs adults, we had a whole array of responses to calming techniques that they do naturally. One of them um, makes lips noises mm -hmm. a lot. Um, and the family that evening we were over for dinner and they said, well, we hope that didn't distract you because, you know, I'm preaching. And, and I'm like, well, unless it's my own kid throwing a fit, like I, <laughs> you, it's really hard to distract me yeah. from preaching. And then they kind of got on a tangent and said, well, we think it distracted some others. And, and so I kind of did some research with my own staff to say, <laughs> like, if, if you hear anything of this, I want to have a personal conversation you know, with these people, because if we can't be a welcoming environment for everyone, including special needs, we really fail to do what Christ has called us to do. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess, how do you train, like, help people as a, like, create a culture, like, not mm -hmm. just necessarily with mm -hmm. volunteers, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, we might have anybody that has never stepped foot in our church who might have a similar response. Mm -hmm. We've also had good responses. I mean, mm -hmm. one person, they had, were sharing some of the responses they had, and another person had said, um, they had apologized, and the person said, don't apologize, they have, like, we should be following them, not them following us. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have all over the spectrum, but I mean, you might have a guest any Sunday mm -hmm. that's, oh, uh, this, I'm not used to this environment or this mm -hmm. special needs person and how do we maybe help people prepare for that or mm -hmm. respond to that? Yeah. And so you can certainly establish that culture, you know, regularly as far as, you know, preaching, you know, on Sunday morning, you know, the messages. You know, if you're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12, make sure you're hi we're highlighting, sure. you know, that this is what this means for us. And maybe get the parents' permission to say, you know, this is, this is exactly what we, you know, Joshua is like this, right? Or, you know, Matthias is like this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, but he, and he is a valued part of this body, right? And if you're at all curious about what that part really is, then let's have a conversation on Wednesday night, 
right, when we dig into this a little bit deeper, right? But on Sunday morning, I know Barbara Newman actually, during one of her plenary addresses, she mentioned how um, there has to be a two, two parts to any plan. You make a plan for the person, right, that, you know, yes, during the worship hour, they're going to wave this streamer, right? They can't sing. You know, but they can wave this streamer and be excited about worship and express that. But if you don't let anybody know else know why she's waving the streamer, what has she become? A she's become a distraction, right? So from the pulpit or from wherever the minister, the worship leader says, Jackie is waving this. She's now part. She's she's going to help us celebrate worship today by waving this streamer. So now because it has come from a microphone, she's now part of the worship team, right? So she becomes a valued member of, of the body on that in that moment, right? So if you, and you may not notice because you've tried to tune it out, but I think if we can at, at any time address from the microphone, you know, and, and maybe it's, you know, at the outset, you know, we might, we, for those guests, we do have some folks that might wander, wander the aisle. Or they might do, you know, some iterations or noises that might seem a little unusual to you. But they are valued and welcome here. Right? <clears throat> so maybe during your welcome announcements time, you just remind everyone, you know, that, that Josh is, is here and, and he's and we, we want him here. So we're just going to remind everyone that, that no, they are, they are welcome. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way. And that also just really puts it out in front of everyone every single week that people with disabilities or who act differently, doesn't even necessarily have to be a disability, if they're just acting a little different, right? They may have worked all night the night before and they can't sit in the pew, but they want to be there. So can we give them permission to walk the, you know, walk up and down? You know, can we give them permission to do some things a, a little bit differently? Right. I think, I think as pastors, Kurt, I mean, we kind of set the permission, right? Yeah. To, it's you okay do. to be messy. It's okay to be, you know, this is this is the win. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, we we have a young lady who has uh, been along, you know, church. Down syndrome. She's probably in her late twenties, but she loves to sing. And man, she is loud. And she is off key, but she is worshiping big time. Yeah. And, and the parents, the parents, I feel a little bit awkward. We all say, and when dad's an elder, it's good. It's a joyful noise. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's beautiful. So, but we have to kind of give people permission. Yes. To say hey, this is welcome. Mm -hmm. you know. Well, and even for that parent, just like for myself, I had to get over myself sure. and my embarrassment yeah. that I was distracting someone else. Sure. So, and so anyways, I think <coughs> as soon as a pastor, I'm sorry. Our right. hope program was born from Rebecca. She had a sister that was, she got hurt when she was very infant baby, so she was, she was uh, had disabil physical disabilities and mental disabilities, but she would sit in that in in the service in her wheelchair and would sing, not just when we were singing the song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she would during prayer time, during communion. Words, it was just 
you know, and she's got all of a sudden she just blast out a note or two here and there, you know, and, and if anybody ever wasn't there, but because of Rebecca as a child growing up with her, and she passed away when Rebecca was 12, and she was like 16, as Rebecca got older and in high school, she put together the HOPE program. Yeah, awesome. She created it mm -hmm. and did it for eight years in, in, in our church where we had the Mother's Day Out thing. But then she went off to college and now got married and all that good stuff. But it was because of her yeah. sister. Awesome. You know, that, yeah. You know, and she's a special <coughs> teacher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's but, awesome. You know, you may have to talk about the singing that, that yeah. She would just sing whenever God let her sing. Yeah. yeah. But from the microphone, you can, I think, squash a lot of those attitude issues. The insecurities or the, or the, yeah. Yeah. So I have a question because, you know, we don't have an, an active um, membership with disabilities. Um, so how do you go from this transition period of you know not having that but we want to welcome it we want to be available mm -hmm. for those who come because we've had visitors come mm -hmm. who um, visit for whatever reason this is you know about some of the same things I don't come to church because of you know haven't feel, felt welcome mm -hmm. you know I don't want my child to be a distraction to others mm -hmm. and there are going to be those people who are going to give the evil, evil eye from the side of the pew because mm -hmm. it's not in, in our church's case silent um, you know, and it's a distraction or it's something they're mm -hmm. uncomfortable is what mm -hmm. it is. So how do you move your congregation during that transitional point to be accepting? Mm -hmm. Because it's not something we encounter on an everyday basis. But you can start talking about it, right? You can talk about it on Sunday morning during messages. You maybe even do a, a study. You know, maybe you're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12 and take six weeks on a Wednesday night study or a small group time, right, to really dive into deep what does that mean and then encourage all of them, you know, all those individual participants. Well, now that we've know this, right, how do we put this into practice, right? And that'll look different for everyone. And I think, you know, so we're going to go through, we're going to run through some of these challenges. We're going to, it's 423 already, so <clears throat> we're going to run through this a little bit and then and then talk a little bit more about those specific things, you know, as far as how do we get to that point. And um, so, so we'll, we'll come back to that for sure. So I want us to um, acknowledge that, that there are absolutely challenges. We've talked about training. Your people need to be confident that they can, that they've learned enough, but they'll never learn at all. Right? So at some point, you have to stop training and, act, and doing. Right? But if you've given them a good foundation of support, especially as it relates to behaviors, right? And, you know, how do we deal with behaviors? Because that seems to be the thing that's so fright frightening for so many. Right? So there are three universal barriers, and then there's two more that, um, again, Eric Carter from Vanderbilt, he's got a pretty cool book about including people with disabilities in your faith community. He talks about these five barriers. There's three that, um, that everyone can really wrap their brain around. Um, the first one was, oh, it should be architect. There should be an architecture slide in here. <laughs> so um, so the, the first universal barrier is architecture. And if I had the slide, there'd be a, a gentleman in a wheelchair 
sitting next to a, a staircase with a big sign that says, all are welcome. And he's kind of not looking very happy, right? Because not, you know, is it, is it really true that all are welcome if we don't have ramp access? And the architecture is the thing that everyone goes to first. And they all assume we can't do that because it's so expensive. Or, we, or we're worshiping in um, historical preservation buildings and we can't possibly do anything because of, well, whatever. Anyway, so, <laughs> so architecture is a big thing. But we express, we actually reflect our values in our architecture, right? If, if our ramps are all outside with no head covering, you know, if they can't walk through the rain, you know, to from, get from one place to another without going outside in the rain or the snow, right? Do we really truly value all of those individuals? Do we truly, you know, if, if you put your kids on the second floor, because that's the, where the biggest space is, but you don't have an elevator, You've just told a certain group of, of individuals you can't play here, you can't participate, because nobody's going to carry them up the stair. Or they might offer, oh, sure, we can do that. We've got plenty of young, strapping men. But really, is that really dignified? Right? So our, our architecture will reflect our values at the end of the day. And unfortunately, it's one of those things that churches can hide behind because there is no federal mandate, right, to change our buildings. And we're not gonna redo anything in the, in the, in the building because then if we do any major re re renovations, then we will have to create a bathroom that's so big, right? And we might have to go to one hole instead of three, right, because of the limited space. So there's just so many things, but it's, it's one of those things that, and, and all of these challenges, they're, they're challenges that eventually, when you get down to it, if we're not willing to meet these challenges, then we're really not living up to our values. So the, the second one is communication. This one is, is born out of, you know, do you have large print options for your bulletin if you still use one? Do you have large print Bibles? Do you have a means for those people that can't see the screen, do you print off your music for them? Or at least have it an option. I'm not saying you need to have 100 copies every week, but even if it's just a few, right? So that someone who knows, oh, you know, I could use that today, you know, or I left my glasses at home, so, or my reader, so, or whatever, so I could use the large print version today. Do you have a hearing loop installed or what, what kinds of things do you have? This visual schedule here is one of those things that um, is a universal um, solution to, especially to a children's environment. When you put up a visual schedule in a children's area, the anxiety in the entire room will go down, especially when you have new kids because they can see we're going home at the end of this, mommy just dropped me off, right? But I can see here, so we're in the middle of a Bible story, but if we do all of these things, then we're gonna go home. So I'm not, you know, so the anxiety level pulls way down. And that's just appropriate for anyone, right? That's not even our, 
or kids with disabilities. There are lots of things that I actually, there's a, a cool story I have to share. So over there is a little box and normally I have a nice big basket. Um, we call them fidget friends that we had set out for in our congregation. And they were designed for those, you know, who just need something in their hand so that they can sit, sit quietly. One of the, the first times, a couple of weeks after we had put it out, there was a, a, an older gentleman, I think he's in his 80s, and he's, he's struggling with dementia. And he sat in the choir still, because that's where he sits. And um, he got up one time during the middle of, the song, of our worship music, and he got one of the stress balls. And I almost lost it, because it wasn't intended for him. It was intended for people with a disability that need something, you know, for kids, right? But here we have a gentleman with dementia who recognized, oh, that would be helpful for me in this, at this moment, right? So he was able to utilize that. So the things that we do, and Barbara, and I love Barbara Newman, by the way, she's one of my heroes. She says the things that we do for the 20% often apply to the 100%, right? So. So here's that attitude, this baby, I love, I, I've seen that side eye so many times. But it's that attitude, how do, we, how do we help people get over themselves that, why are we concerned about what's happening next to us instead of being focused on worshiping God in this moment, right? So, and there are different, for, for these challenges, especially these three, there's different tools out there. They're called accessibility audits. Some of them are like lots of pages long, um, but they ask questions, you know, that might be very, you know, things that your session or that your team can really d dig deep into, you know, examining, self-examination, right? Do we, are, is our attitude truly reflective of our values? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And then the last two that Eric Carter talks about is programmatic and liturgical challenges. So the programmatic, one of the things I used to mention is that I did not need to come to church on Sunday morning to be, if, if church, if I could be around Christian brothers and sisters on a Friday night, that would have been just fine with me. I didn't have to do worship on Sunday morning in order to feel like I was involved or, you know, it, it didn't matter to me when it was going to be. But when we focus everything on Sunday morning, right, who are we excluding in that moment, right? And it's not necessarily just people with disabilities who have, you know, been working, you know, to be an advocate and a caregiver, you know, Monday through, through Saturday, right? And Sunday might be their only day of rest. So they're not getting out of bed, right, to come and then fight with a faith community, right? So maybe we do something on a different night, right? Our programs, our, our schedules that we've created or the expectations that we have within those settings, you know, are the, have we unintentionally created a barrier, to certain people. So and so it's not just the advocate who's been struggling for the last six days, but what about you know the family who works third shift, right, over the weekend, 
right? So what, what kinds of programming can we put into place that might catch, you know, throw that net in a different, on the other side of the boat, right? And that's just something that you and your staff would have to consider. You know, who are we excluding because we have decided to do it this way, right? And could, could we possibly, if we just tweaked a little bit, could we, do, could we catch some more? And then the liturgical, the liturgical is, um, especially as it relates to our expectations with our sacraments, you know, what do you say to the parents, to the caregivers of a 22-year-old who have all of their life been part of a denomination that says you have to make a personal profession of faith with your mouth in order to be saved? And then they've been introduced to your church, you know, where we have a covenant baptism relationship. Their 22-year-old has never been baptized, right, because they weren't in that system at all, didn't have that understanding. You know, what do you say to this family? You know, would you be willing to baptize the 22-year-old who can't communicate, who may never, or baptize the the soldier who has had a traumatic brain injury who has been coming but he can't verbalize right so I mean there's lots of different you know when you've got trauma and things that are just not how would you answer how would you respond to that situation so and that's just something that you would have to you know be able to answer and be ready to answer is super important right because when mom comes to you and says, I don't know if my child is going to heaven because he can't verbalize. How do, you, how do you answer that? So you just need to know how you would answer that. Right? I, I can't tell you how, to, how you would answer that. So, um, yeah, so those are, those are huge. The liturgical issues are huge for many. Um, I, I can remember um, being told that I did not need to worry about my children. That's it. That wasn't a good enough answer for me. Because <laughs> I grew up in a denomination that um, was not reformed. So, um, so that, that prior slide, um, there's a little note here. Let's talk about the Book of Order. So. I am actually one of those weird people that actually um, scour the Book of Order because I care about what it says. <laughs> oh, you got one. And um, so, and I've actually sent off this list. Um, and uh, Dr. Ayamiri um, said that he has passed it on to the theology team. So, and it is a list of all of those places within the Book of Government, within the, our Book of Order, that because it was written when it was, the language might be a little bit exclusionary. So, and unfortunately I didn't write exactly what it says, I just list my observation of it, but you can, if you happen to have your Book of Order handy in your back pocket, or I have it here, if you're curious about what it says. But these are going before the theology team and I'm really hoping that they will consider modifying some of the language that we have. One of the biggest piece, one of the biggest concerns 
um, let's see, where's it at? Yes, yeah, so that first one, chapter 8, 3, um, B1. There's a definition of who belongs on the active role. And, and I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, actually I have it right here. This is important, I promise. <coughs> All right, so eight, eight, three, B, one. Yes, so active role. So this is under the membership roles. This role includes confirmed members, that is, those who have been baptized, made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, have had their membership confirmed by the session and are entitled to participate in the governing of the church by voting in meetings of the congregation. Only this active role shall be reported to Presbytery for membership purposes. My two children, 18 and 20, would not be considered active members because they cannot make a public profession of faith. Now they were baptized because my the pastor, you know, baptized them when we came to a reformed understanding of things. But um, and they'll never, they aren't really entitled to participate in a governing of the church by voting in meetings because they just don't have any understanding of what that means, right? So technically, my two children would not be considered, and yet Scripture tells me that they are valued members of the body, right? So. How does that work, right? So that's just one of the one of the things that it just it just feels like. Are those really the only people that we should be counting? Are we really reflecting the membership of the EPC well when we limit it to that? So, and there's a and it's a there's a two pages worth. So, and the, actually in that last one, acts of assembly. I didn't actually see this anywhere on the the backside. Um, it, it lists those people that should be um, screened um, with background checks, and I would really like to see them include vulnerable populations, even our seniors, right, and people with disabilities, because they all need to be protected that way. All right, all right. So discerning your response. All right, a little bit of time. All right, so. One of the difficult things about this conversation is that I do not believe there is one size fits all with this. I can't give you a book and say if you check all of these boxes, you'll be successful in this in this endeavor. Because I think that God has knit each of our communities differently. That you have different people, you have different skills, you you might have a behavior specialist in your congregation, you just don't know it because you haven't asked. Right? You might have a special ed teacher, or you might have a retired special ed teacher who hasn't really thought about doing anything with that in years because, well, she's retired. Right? But if you asked around, you might be surprised of who you have in your midst. Right? So, and based on who you have, those skills, will 
I think, naturally determine how your congregation is going to respond to this. Right? I, I'm not going to tell you that everyone needs to establish a respite program because that may not be the skill set that's appropriate for your people. Then the respite program is when you uh, allow, it's essentially a daycare um, opportunity you know, for folks to be able to drop their child off and do something else. So, but it will be unique to your congregation. So based on all of the different things, you know, you're, you're going to have to have that conversation um, amongst your elders and really even am amongst your congregation. How interesting would it be to, to take a couple hours on a Sunday afternoon and just brainstorm with everyone, right, in your congregation. This is something that we need to do. What do you think, right? What, what ideas do you have, right? I, I think um, some amazing conversations and ideas could come out of that. So, discerning our response, universal design and responsive design. Universal design are those things that we will implement just because everyone will benefit from them. The architects do that, you know, with the, um, we're going to put an elevator in every building that we build now because that's what we have to do. We're going to put push buttons so that anyone, no matter how strong they are, can get in the door. Right? You know, so what are those things that we can do that everyone will benefit from? And then the, this responsive design idea is that we're going to, so we're going to put all of those things in place. We're going to have a picture schedule. We're going to have a plan for how do we deal with, you know, we create buddy systems and all of that. But then the responsive design will be specific to that individual and that family and what they need. You know, maybe they just need time. The caregiver might just need time to process this grief, especially if it's a new diagnosis, right? And they just don't know what to do with themselves, right? Where are they at in acknowledging their new reality, their new normal, right? And the church can have an amazing impact to help walk with them in that time. Does that all make sense to me? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And then these are these. So these um, two tools that are here on the right side. I'm very excited to share these with you. So we talked a little bit about an accessibility audit. On this um, beige paper, it's it's something that I've created um, because with my advocacy book that I'm writing. It actually has a partner specific to help ministry leaders, um, ministry leaders advocate better um, for families with disabilities as well. So, so these two tools have come out of me processing what that might need to include. And this expectations and abilities audit, it's kind of a a half step between some of those other accessibility audit tools that are out there for you because what I want what I'm asking you to do is to sit down with your session especially and really list out what are our expectations how what do we expect people to encounter or to experience when when we are gathered together whether that be during worship time during Wednesday night dinner 
whatever that might, whenever you're gathered, if it's a small group, if it's a mentoring relationship, you know, what are, what are our expectations? And then asking the question, well, are, based on our expectations, is that actually happening? And could it be possible that we expect that everyone can read the music that is up on the slides, but the reality is that no, there's about five or six of our senior adults that we know can't sing. They may have decided that they just don't like this music, right? That's what you might hear, but it's really probably more born out of they miss their hymnal, they miss the words that they can read, you know, and because they can't see all those words up there. Or maybe you've got some flashing and dancing backgrounds so they can't read it either, right? So what, so I, I listed here some, some things that we, to consider that might be inhibiting everyone's ability to, to participate and um, to get what we expect that they're going to get. As, and at the bottom, this last paragraph, as you think about these things, it may surprise you whom among you may need support on one or more of these points, but have never spoken up. Any medical procedure or crisis can cause these needs. There are many reasons why people do not speak up. They may suffer through or worse, decide to stay home. We can be proactive by asking our friends at church if any of these things would be helpful. They may not even realize that they have such a need. And I, and I think especially, you know, our, our egos and, you know, this is what we've always done, right? So um, different things get in the way of why they don't speak up. But if we can be intentional about reaching out to them. And then this second tool, um, I'm calling it the Individualized Spiritual Growth Plan. This is actually born out of um, kind of modeling it after the Individualized Education Plan that our families with disabilities deal with with the school system. But of course the church isn't mandated to do Jack Bananas, you know, when it comes to the IEP. So when I would speak on this conversation, you know, one of the things I heard is that families did not like being singled out. They didn't like the huge packet of information that they had to fill out in order for their child to participate, right? So what would happen if everyone got something to fill out? Or everyone was asked, what are your needs, right? So, so this um, spiritual growth plan tool, this, this front sheet kind of explains all of the things on this backside. And I already got this, and I would love your feedback if you look at, if you see it and wish it, you know, I would love um, to really perfect this tool for the EPC and for this book that I'm writing. But if you, the goal for this is to really help all of us, you know, identify certain things and to help us be able to, it, it, it really is a different metric. Right? It's a different metric than money in the plate and butts in the seats, right? It's a, a different way to value. Are we actually doing what we think we're doing, right? Are we actually, so when we ask someone to remember their baptism, right, and wh how, what does that mean to them and how does that affect you know, their testimony, 
right? And actually asking them to list out their testimony points so that they're prepared to share their testimony, right? If they actually wrote it down, how much more confident might they be to actually share it with someone? And then double checking to make sure they are connected. These family of God connections, are they in a small group or, or a Sunday school? Are they, what are they doing? that it makes sure that they're being fed and, as, as, again, as we think everyone should be. Are they what are they enlisted doing? Which might be mutually exclusive to what their spiritual gifts are. Right? That's why both of those things are on here. They might be enlisted doing Wednesday night supper. They might be washing dishes. But they've been washing dishes for 10 years. And they might be a little bit tired of washing dishes. But they can't stop washing dishes because nobody else is going to wash the dishes. Right? So, are, are we make, so just double checking on our people. Are we still doing things because, you know, and doing things because they need to be done is absolutely, there's nothing wrong with that. But are we double checking that they don't feel trapped and they don't feel like they have to leave your congregation in order to stop washing dishes, right? Because I've seen that over and over that, that people just stop coming because they felt trapped in what they were doing. And then identifying our spiritual gifts and are we currently using those gifts? Because oftentimes it's hard to burn out when you know you're doing something that God has really empowered you to do. What do you have a heart for? I heard um, this conversation. I, I came to this. I attended Catalyst Conference in, in Georgia with um, Andy Stanley. And that particular year, he t his whole thing was he asked us two questions. Who are you and what breaks your heart? And he read from the book of Nehemiah, that first, first chapter of Nehemiah. And he said, and he said to us, is it possible that God has broken your heart for a reason? And that your broken heart is part of God's divine design. That you're not expected to change the world, but you are being asked to change something. So what would it look like to lean into that thing, that, where, what God, how God has broken your heart? And that's super powerful for me. Because I, I, I could answer that question immediately. It breaks my heart that there are families all over this country and this world who cannot participate in worship because of their disability. So, so I'm leaning into that, trying to fix it. What kind of specific skills do they have? You know, are they a blacksmith or are they an accountant that could teach, uh, you know, a money-making, uh, a money um, stewardship class? You know, what are some of the things that maybe are untapped potential? You know, amongst our amongst our congregation, and then these spiritual pursuits. You know, have does someone want to read through the Bible in a year, right? And really kind of get that on paper, so that now you've got an accountability tool, maybe with a, a mentor. You know, or you know, so they can check up on them and say, how are we doing on that that thing? And then this bottom part, and and this is really these specific accommodations. Do they need, do we need to think about hearing um, accommodations for them? Do we, do that, does that person need a large print version of the bulletin? Do we need to work, do we have some cognitive things that we need to really be aware of and plan for and, and really make them, so this becomes not something that 
just the person with a disability fills out, right? You know, that yes, you know, the odds, you know, yes, they have a cog. So for my family, we would fill this out and add, you know, sons with autism. They're going to live with us forever, right? So what is that? That looks very, so my life looks very different, right? And how does the church support that family, right? So, so I'm excited about this different metric, and I would love for y'all to, to glance at it and send me feedback. I think I, yeah, on the front, I put my email address. I'd love for y'all to, to let me know what you think. So. All right, and then finally, yay, 453. So I would ask, so would you be willing to commit to really compel our neighbors to come in? You know, Luke, again, Luke 14, um, this is, of course, the great banquet now. Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. This is an important, this compel people, I, you know, this is kind of, you know, what do we do, you know, in this transition? How, how do we make that happen? Because they're not, often if they've been hurt, right, they're not going to show up at your door anymore, right? They've, they've experienced enough trauma or drama, whichever one it might be. So we have to go to them, right? We have to seek out the nonprofits that are out there that are already doing work, probably in a secular perspective, you know, what if we set up a table and everyone's wearing your shirt t-shirt at the next March of Dimes marathon, right? And you're just water at the watering hole, right? Supporting this kind of thing. You might not talk to anybody, but somebody might see, oh, that church is just right down the road from me. It might be valuable to check out because they're here supporting us, right? So it's kind of those backdoor things. How do, we, how do we find ways to establish relationships with people that have probably had nothing but tough experiences with a, you know, with a faith community? So, and starting with your school district, I know we can't do a lot of things, but you could volunteer in the disability, in the special ed department, <coughs> right? how they never get any attention, right? Everyone wants to go to the library and read, you know, to the kids at, at library time. But what if you were to read with the special ed department or help the special ed teacher, you know, or, or adopt a special ed department, you know, and help them with supplies, you know, the way, you know, just making sure that, you know, give them some extra, you know, or, or being those extra hands for a, a festival or you know just being willing to volunteer and getting around those those folks you know and just wear your t-shirt you may not have to say a word to them but the fact that you're there right it speaks volumes i, I stumbled on a i mean the uh, the school local high school called because their um, team qualified for the special olympics uh, yeah state playoffs or something uh -huh. and they needed transportation so I ended up driving our church van which has our name on it right to, you know and so I think the word gets out mm -hmm. 
you know, once they know that you're a community that welcomes, then all of a sudden, okay, we're going to come now, or we're going to try that. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was really like, okay, we really, and, and I ended up, I wanted someone else to drive, and they couldn't do it, so I ended up being me, but it was a yeah. blessing. Yeah, uh-huh. And so, so it's little ways. Yeah. Because the needs are great. Right. Well, but it's, it's those little ways that will add up eventually. And I've, I've heard it that so many people are afraid that if they put on their website, you know, we want you here, that they'll be inundated and there's no way. And, you know, and I hear it all the time. And I'm like, well, that's not really going to happen. It might be a trickle effect, but they're not just going to show up like a tsunami because they've been hurt. Really. And, and we have to, we have to earn their, their trust, again. So, if we ever had it. How did um, the conversation come up for your boys that they weren't baptized with your pastor? Is that something you brought up? Or we did. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was yeah. curious. If well, and we brought it up because when we started attending there, and actually it's kind of funny, because I was searching for a staff position. And it didn't matter, as long as it wasn't Catholic, I was applying <laughs> anywhere, didn't matter. And I, and I was called for an interview at a, a church within the EPC. And my husband and I, many years prior, had decided that we wanted, that we thought Presbyterian was where we needed to be. But none of the ones that we saw out there, we were excited about. And so when I was when I got the call back on that, you know, of course you start doing research on, you know, this church. It's like, EPC, who is this? Where have they been all of our life? So, um, and when I wasn't called to that position, you know, we were like, well, is there any in our backyard? And there was one half hour away. And so, and we didn't, and I didn't call and ask for permission this time. Because the boys were older, their behaviors were practically non-existent compared to the, what they were. And I didn't need them to be in a separate space. We just all needed to be able to sit together and to be able to handle the rocking and the flapping and maybe the occasional, you know, blurt out of, you know, when the, my, one of my favorite stories is we're singing a song that's got, you know, holy, holy, holy. And my oldest son says, holy hallucination. <laughs> of course, that's from one of his favorite movies, Batman, right? The original series. So, and everyone just cracked, you know, it was wonderful. But he associated, right, those things. So, I'm just glad it was that one and not, you know, some of the others that <laughs> Robin can say. But, um, so, so we, we showed up and we, you know, in the process of desiring membership, you know, we had a conversation with the pastor and in the session. And it was actually about a year, a year and a half later um, before we talked about the boys' baptism. Um, and, and actually, one of the first, and I talk about this in my book, um, we had been out of church for 15 years, had not sat in a worship t service together for 15 years. The first time Communion Sunday came, came around, we didn't have a conversation about communion. I was raised in a denomination that you don't have communion if you don't haven't made a personal profession of faith, right? So my oldest is sitting on the outside, my husband and I and then the youngest. And so my husband takes the plate and he gives 
my, my the oldest the bread and I'm about I'm I'm dying I'm having a personal conniption it's like what are you doing eyes are bright and wide and you know I'm not happy at all about what I'm seeing my husband who is the spiritual head of the household do because <laughs> we didn't have this conversation right so I'm personally I'm very upset because it's not what you're supposed to do and but I had to give you know the youngest because my husband has made a decision that this is what we're doing and um, the sinkhole that I wanted to open never did and um, so and, and as we pass the plate you know they, they say the body you know shed for you the blood shed for you right and so we got through the bread and then when the cup came around um, I, I started to calm down a little bit and then when um, when I gave Matthias the, the cup and he was holding it very nicely and I, and I said the blood shed for you um, and then I personalized it shed for you Matthias I'm, I'm pretty sure I heard in my spirit that yes Matthias is welcome at my table mm. it's God's table it's not ours right and um, so that was a, a, a personal barrier that I had to get over, right? As far as understanding this re reformed covenant relationship. And I was glad that our, the pastor in the session were, you know, on board, you know, with them being baptized and didn't, weren't concerned about them taking communion. But... um you felt like the Lord put his hand on you and comforted you about that, like a spiritual... Yeah. yeah. Now, I'm 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 pretty I'm pretty sure I, I heard those words, and I don't and I don't hear my husband does, but and I don't usually hear directly like that. But but it was very much okay. So yeah, yeah. I I, I just asked a question. You know, I think a lot of times you know it's easier to hold a baptism class or you know something like that that people that might be interested, but hadn't thought of people that. You know, someone that, you know, can't make a verbal profession that they would just assume that it wasn't for them and therefore they're not going to come to a class. So right. I was trying to determine. Well, and they wouldn't, well, and they wouldn't understand that, you know, for us, a class wouldn't do anything for them. It was really more about us understanding the boys' relationship in this, in, in the covenant. Right. And that's what, I mean, any time... Uh, we kind of have a unique environment because a lot of our kids, like we, they, a lot of our families hold more towards a believer baptism. Mm -hmm. um, but, so then they're like 10 or 12 or something like mm -hmm. that. So, so, but at the same time, even with a believer baptism, like we still have these covenantal vows that we make with the congregation um, that that's so kind of the parents affirming, you know, to, to helping and so Thank you. I would love to chat, uh, you know, again, if there's, I wish I had been able to have you comment a little bit more, so, thank you. But anyway, my thought was, you know, that I would hope that I could have, you know, that covenantal yeah. conversation, but I think sometimes I have blinders in terms of yeah. that that conversation wouldn't even happen if, they think there's a barrier or something. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and like I said, I mean, I came from a denomination that it just wasn't an option because they couldn't make that personal profession. But within the Reformed, you know, and our understanding of the covenant relationship, it's very different, right? So especially when you have someone coming from a non-Reformed tradition, you know, who, you know, you're past infant baptism, so now what? Now what do you do? And even then, it also applies for, you know, people who experience trauma, right? And, you know, especially our, our soldiers coming home that have traumatic brain injury and maybe, you know, they can't express themselves or what, whatever it might be. Someone who's had a stroke, you know, in their 30s, you know, it's the same kind of what do we, do we assume that because they didn't, that they will never, right? That they aren't, that they are excluded, you know, should our assumption be on the opposite side that God loves this person, right? So, I mean, there's a great, it's not just about kids with autism, right? There's a huge population out there that some of these things, if we really were to lean into what does it really mean, you know, to, to show mercy and grace to all people, right? We might have to do some things a little bit differently. Yeah. Because it's easy just to, to say we're having a class, right? But it's, it is a little bit more work for sure to, to go to each person and say, you know, where are you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're about, we're about done. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming.